We are. We are. We are cultivate. 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 We are cultivate. Hello and welcome to Ye Old Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and with me is my sister and co-host, Maddie Stengel. Hello. Hi. Is this the second to is the second to last episode in December? Yes. Nice. I was like, is this the last one? But like it feels like the last one, but it's not. It's another week. No. So I got one more week in December. Mm-hmm. Speaking of, we have been invited to take part in a special like Christmas collaboration episode. So mm. it will be Yield Crime, Twisted and Uncorked, That's So Fucked Up, Pacific Northwest Haunted Homicides, and Live Laugh Larceny. And that will come out on Christmas. So stay tuned for that. That will be our special holiday episode for the Christmas season. Nice. And on that note... <laughs> let's dive into this week's disaster which is the washington arsenal explosion oh this is gonna be gnarly yeah information was pulled from the following sources the 2022 u.s department of veteran affairs article by nalia warmack 2021 off the record tours article by david shaw 2017 streets of washington article 2016 Long Island Winds article by Patrick Young Esquire, 2015 Library of Congress blog post by Ellen Terrell, 2014 Congressional Cemetery blog post by Lauren Malloy, 2014 The New York Times article by John Grady, 2014 U.S. Army article by Julia Ledoux, 2013 Ghosts of D.C. blog post by Andrea Pauly, 2012 National Archives article by Jay Bellamy, 1864 Evening Star article. There's actually two from there. Atlas Obscura and the History Marker Database. Nice. And links to all of these articles will be included in the show notes. Got something you want to say? Shoot us an email over at yieldcrimepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your story ideas, see any gifts you send our way, or if you just want to say hello. We're pretty friendly. Speaking of friendly... If you'd like to have real-time conversations with us, consider joining our Discord over at the Cultivate Network. You can chat with us over at the Old Crimers Cubby, or catch up with any of the other great creators that are part of the Cultivate family of podcasts. Just click the link in our show notes, or over on our link tree to get started today. It was unusually warm on Friday, June 17, 1864, nearing almost 100 degrees Fahrenheit, or around 38 degrees Celsius, it started as a normal day for the workers of the Washington Arsenal. Mm-hmm. For context, even though Washington, D.C. is not in the South, it's got a lot of water, mm-hmm. so it does get very humid. I bet. And it was hot. So think hot, wet air. Not like hot, okay. dry, hot, wet. So like August. In Minnesota, yes. essentially. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Where you feel like you're swimming. Where you're mm-hmm. like, oh, I didn't didn't even need to take a shower because I'm going to have to take one as soon as I get home anyway. So yep. for context, 
the Civil War was taking place, mm. and it wouldn't end for almost another year. Dang. Cannons, bombs, and bullet munitions were needed for the Union soldiers, and the Washington Arsenal in D.C., which was located at present-day Greenleaf's Point, Fort Leslie J. McNair, was doing just that. So this place was kind of like one Uh of the bigger arsenal hubs in the country. Got it. Makes sense if it's near all the water, too. Which is a great transition, because the arsenal, which was originally built in 1803, near the intersection of the Potomac and Anacostia Rivers, was primarily a final assembly point for guns and other munitions. Okay. The arsenal consisted of five sections, the last of which was the choking room. Mm, yep. The building consisted of ten windows, three doors, the middle of which was a large double door, and mm-hmm. walls made of either heavy or light brick. Yep. And the roof was made of tin. Setting the stage. Not very great. As a sidebar, I know about the choking room, kind of, because funnily enough, a medical clinic I used to work for was in a building that used to be a munitions building. Like, they used to manufacture, okay. like, guns and ammo. And so, okay. like, certain rooms had different, like, doors and, like, mm-hmm. how they were cr- created and they were stuck at a certain temperature so no matter what we did we couldn't get cold air in there or hot air like it was temp controlled that way gotcha that's also a great segue because i didn't know what it meant so choking is the last step in the ammunition process quote where paper cartridges filled with gunpowder had a bullet inserted in them and they were then tied off end quote or choked before a machine would attach the end of the cartridge to the ball. Yep. Another good description of what this means comes from off-the-record tours. So, quote, Their job was to put gunpowder in small paper tubes, then insert lead bullets into the powder-filled cylinders, then choking them off using a series of very small folds. This formed the small arms cartridges for Union Army guns. End quote. Yep. Around 110 young women were working in the laboratory, or Mm -hmm. laboratory, as we call them here in the States, with 30 in the choking room, filling 21,000 cartridges with gunpowder over the course of 12 hours each day for the war effort. Yeah. I don't know why it makes a difference, but I'm even sadder now that it's a bunch of women. (laughs) At the time, young women and girls as young as 13 were selected for this type of work. Because of their tiny, nimble fingers. As it was believed that their smaller, daintier fingers were better suited for packing the ammunition once they were assembled. Fuck. Many of the women employed were the offspring of Irish immigrants, forced to work to earn small wages to provide for their families while the Mm -hmm. men were off at war. Yep. A large number of these women were unfortunately the sole breadwinners, or they were widows doing what they needed to survive. Yep. At the time, arsenal workers made 50 to $60 a month, or around $978 to $1,200 a month now, but it should be noted that women were usually paid half of that. Yeah, and probably especially in the war effort. I bet they could make an even better excuse that because there's war happening, they don't have the money. Yep, and because they're women, they mm-hmm. it was okay for them to be paid less. Well, no, that, that's a given, right? Like... The ceiling yeah. was not made of glass at the time. It was made of brick. It was made We're of brick. <laughs> it was made of brick. 
As you can imagine, conditions at the arsenal, especially considering the materials with which they had to work with, were less than ideal. I can't imagine. The volatile black powder spread throughout the entirety of the building, accumulating in the carpet that covered the arsenal's floor in an effort to prevent any sparks that would cause an explosion. They put carpet. Yes, because if like the women's heels were to spark on the floor, it could cause the powder to ignite. Mm. And they did this as a result of a previous explosion that happened at a different munitions place when a horse's hoof had caused a spark. So that's when they were like, carpet. Great. Yeah, sure. That'll fix everything. Great job, everybody. Our work here is done. Yep. Applause all around. Not only was the gunpowder an issue, but the women were wearing high-necked, long-sleeved blouses and long hoop skirts, which I can imagine were stiflingly hot, given that it was even warmer inside the arsenal than it was outside. Yeah. Yeah, but and because of all the gunpowder and stuff, I bet there was no like fans or any sort of air mm-hmm. coming in. The Saturday, June 18th, 1864 edition of the Evening Star included an interesting note in its coverage of the event. So this is an article that came out the day after. Got it. Quote, a young girl employed in the laboratory was yesterday morning dismissed for laughing and talking in the room, contrary to the rules. They were to be silent. Mm. She bewailed the fact of her dismissal to an elderly friend employed in the room who tried to comfort her by saying that it would perhaps all turn out for the best, but with no thought that the events of the day would so soon make her words true, end quote. So being fired saved her life. Yep. On this hot day, the superintendent of the arsenal, a man named Thomas B. Brown, had laid out three pans of red and white star pellets used in flares and fireworks for the upcoming 4th of July celebrations so they could dry. Okay. The fireworks had been sitting in the sun for three to four hours at that point when around 11.50 a.m. a large explosion was heard. The heat of the sun had ignited the pan of star flares, shooting streamers of pellets into the air. In the choking room nearby, a window had been opened to allow some ventilation from the stifling heat. It was through this window that a flaming pellet entered and rolled down the counter, setting the cartridges that the women were handling on fire. To make matters worse, at the very end of the work table was a barrel full of gunpowder that ignited once the pellet rolled into it. I bet this was all within seconds, too. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Like, you can't even, you don't even see it happening at that point. No. As soon as it ignited, the resulting blast lifted the roof off the building, filling the room with fire and smoke. So those women were likely dead instantly. The women who survived the explosion ran for the doors and jumped out of windows, many of them perhaps unaware that the bottom of their hoop skirts were on fire. As they rushed to exit the building, their skirts spread the fire to their co-workers in a horrifying domino effect. Oh my god. This doesn't mean that it was easy to escape. Many that had been seated struggled to free themselves from their workstations as they were trapped due to their heavy benches that they were seated upon. Well, and with the roof being that way too, I'm sure 
a ton of debris just fell on top of them. Sure, yeah. Many of the male employees at the arsenal ran into the building as soon as they heard the explosion, carrying tarpaulins to help extinguish the flames, not only in the room, but on the skirts of the women as they rushed to escape. Yeah. Many of the men ended up sustaining severe burns as well, which, I mean, yeah. it's not as bad as being almost entirely on fire. Right. Firefighters are like, duh. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's not now. <laughs> Girls were scooped up and rushed to the Potomac River nearby, where they were dunked into the water to put out the flames and try to prevent them from developing any more serious burns. Three women were intercepted as they attempted to run up the hill, likely in a state of delirium and confusion as to where they were. Mm -hmm. The men ripped off the top of their clothes to stop the flames from spreading, which likely saved their lives. Yeah. I bet you'd just be in a state of shock. Like in fight or flight, you are just in flight. It doesn't matter. Yeah. And who knows? They could have been like blinded from debris. Something could have blown up in their face. Like, who knows? The explosion, too, would have likely taken out their hearing, so they couldn't yeah. even hear if anybody was yelling, telling them that they're on fire. They would have had tinnitus. Who knows? Others who managed to avoid the blaze, for the most part, were taken to the dock and the government's steam tug. After landing at the 6th Street Wharf, the women were intercepted by friends and family, who took them home to tend to the wounds they had sustained, or, for the more severe cases, took them to the armory hospital. Could you imagine, as the war's already going, you're not going to get good health care right now? No. And that's where a lot of casualties of recent battles were also being taken care of. So right. So it's like... Like, who's the priority? The, the men yeah. who are going to go back out or the women who just got hurt in an explosion nearby? Yeah. So it's like, it had to have been really bad for you to even attempt to go to the hospital, knowing that chances are you're not going to get as much care yeah. when you're there. Fun fact, they call that a code black, where there are enough people dying or that could die that you have to pick who gets to live, like who you work on. Happens in a lot of like major, major city hospitals like LA and New York. They have code blacks. That's disgusting. I mean, it makes sense why it exists, but it's also... Yeah, it still happens today. Once the flames were finally extinguished an hour later, rescuers began to search for survivors. As you can probably imagine, that was the last thing they found. Yeah. Instead, they were met with the charred remains of those who perished during the initial gunpowder blast, many of them missing their limbs. I bet. Several of the bodies were so badly burnt that they had to be placed on boards in order to move them. Otherwise, they would have fallen apart. Yeah. I can't imagine how hot that would have been with all that gunpowder and munitions, like Mm -hmm. just residue. It would have, God, that would have incinerated a body for sure. Yeah, for sure. Because it is very difficult to burn a body. It is. It is a lot harder than you think. Some of the victims would only be identified due to pieces of cloth that hadn't been consumed by the flames or perhaps shoes or something on their person, where that, whether that was a necklace or a ring or right. while many couldn't be identified at all. I bet. In total, 21 workers perished either in the initial blast or succumbed to their wounds shortly after being pulled from the burning building. That is horrific, but that is not as bad as I thought it was going to be. Well, 21 of the 30 people that were in that room. 
I know, but for whatever reason, I was going and thinking like everybody was affected in that area, and that there oh. would have been like more fires and more casualties. You know, kind of like the opera house thing where like yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what yeah. I was thinking. So it is horrific that pretty much essentially everyone who worked there died. Like, don't get me wrong, but less than thirty was not what I had in my head when you started telling the story. I thought it was going to be like 300 people. Yeah, I get that. I get that. But it's still awful. Don't get me wrong. It is. Dr. Woodard, the coroner for the District of Columbia, arrived at the scene of the tragedy around 4 p.m. So this happened at like right before noon. Upon his arrival, he immediately summoned a jury of inquest. After viewing the remains of the victims, the jury was sworn in and the proceedings started. The first to be interviewed was Superintendent Thomas Brown. When asked if he could identify any of the remains, he said he could not, but he believed that one of them was Bridget Dunn, and he based this conclusion solely on the fact that Bridget was a heavier set girl and the fact that one of the corpses was larger than the rest. Wow. Yeah, that really pissed me off. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just probably think that quote-unquote fat at that time was probably not anything. <laughs> I don't know. Although initially he claimed to have no idea how the explosion could have happened, he mm -hmm. did admit to leaving the three pans containing red and white star fireworks laying some 30 to 35 feet away from the window of the choking room. Why would you do that? He went on to explain that the fireworks didn't contain any sulfur, which is highly combustible and that he had previously done the same thing in the past, even in the scorching heat of the month of August, without anything negative happening. Doesn't mean you should do it, dumbass. Yep. Major James G. Benton, who was the commandant of the arsenal, proceeded to show the jury one of the pans in question, which contained a white deposit on the bottom. This proved that the explosion had started in the pan. Thomas was then asked to list the ingredients used in the making of the fireworks, which included black antimony. One of the jurors informed Thomas that black antimony contains sulfur, to which he explained that the composition of the fireworks was one of his own design, and he felt that it was far less dangerous than fireworks of similar composition. Again, doesn't matter. Doesn't fucking matter. Yep. God damn it. <laughs> It's still explosive. I'm sorry. It's still Irrelevant. explosive. <laughs> the next person to be interviewed was Major Benton. He shared that he had not been present at the time of the explosion, but arrived shortly after to help prevent the fire from spreading to the nearby buildings. He went on to state that after inspecting the pans, he determined the explosion had originated from them. He went on to explain the process of assembling the ball cartridges in the choking room. This would involve the points of the balls to be facing the women as they assembled them. And it was his opinion that the women who perished may have been killed after being struck by the explosive cartridges prior to their bodies being consumed by the flames. Oh, yeah. Or if anything, I would imagine they would have been suffocated immediately by the explosion, the air, because yeah. of the way it just kind of sucks everything up before it explodes. They were likely yeah. dead before it even went off. Yeah. I hope. Yeah, that's kind of what I hope, too. Major Benton shared that he had previously warned Superintendent Thomas on several occasions to be careful, not because he thought he was stupid, but because he wanted to make sure he was doing his job. 
It was also his belief that he did not feel the incident was a result of any sort of maliciousness or general carelessness, but that he did not feel that leaving any sort of combustible materials in a heat-absorbing pan was very smart. So he was careless. Yes. And just telling somebody to be careful in your job yeah, means jack shit. Sorry, you really didn't do everything you could either. Yeah. The next person to be questioned was a man named Henry Suferl, who was an employee of the arsenal. He shared that he saw a flame enter the window of the choking room, at which point he shouted to warn the women working there. He ran there as quickly as he could, noting that the flame spread quickly, and he pushed two women who were washing their hands on the porch out of the way before the flames could reach them or their clothes. He confirmed for the jury that he had seen the pans of fireworks earlier that day, but was unable to find them following the explosion. Yeah, because they exploded. Yeah. I don't think they landed where they were originally. All right. Thomas Brown's assistant, so the superintendent's assistant, Andrew Cox, was next to be interviewed. He shared that he had been talking to Thomas and Major Edward Stebbins when the alarm went off. He originally thought the explosion had taken place elsewhere, and it was only as he started running that he realized it was at his own building. He also admitted to seeing the pans of fireworks earlier that day as well. Andrew was able to point out on a blueprint of the building where each of the women in the choking room was seated. He informed the jury that each of the women had about 500 cartridges to work with, and each cartridge contained around 70 grains of powder. He confirmed Major Benton's statement that the ball cartridges would have been facing the women as they were assembled, and it was possible that the women were killed by the guns going off before they were consumed by the fire. God, could you imagine? You just get shot in the face or the, or the, or the chest. Yeah. And then that's the last thing you, you ever experience. Because mm-hmm. the next se- second, either you asphyxiate because all the air's been, all the oxygen's right. been pulled out of the, the air, or you just burst into flames because. Mm-hmm. You got exploded. Horrifying. The next to testify was Major Edward Stebbins, who was the paymaster and military storekeeper. He noted that while sitting at his work table, he noticed something fly through the air through the open window. When he exited the room to investigate, the room was engulfed in flames. He shared that once he made it outside, it was then he realized that what he had seen was a firework, and he believed that some may have even gone as far as the Potomac River which was some 40 feet away, or 13 yards. Mm -hmm. He immediately threw open the doors to the choking room to allow the women to escape and grabbed a tarpaulin to put out the flames that clung to their skirts as they escaped the building. He also shared his opinion that the women sitting on the south side of the bench, or the end closest to the barrel of gunpowder, wouldn't have been able to free themselves from their seats before the fire consumed them. Yeah. No, that makes sense to me, because the gunpowder would have already been lit. At that point, they wouldn't have been able to do anything. They would have been stuck. The final witness was Clinton Thomas, who worked in the gun carriage shop. He shared that he was looking directly at the choking room building when the fire and explosion took place. He saw fireworks explode behind the building and at first thought that Thomas Brown was setting them off. And shortly after, the building was engulfed in flames. The tragedy at the arsenal was so devastating that President Abraham Lincoln and the Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, took a personal interest in the event. Yeah, you should. In the June 20th, 1864 edition of the Evening Star, the following was published in regards to the Secretary of War. Quote, Major Benton, 
commandant of the arsenal, who has been prompt to have proper attention given to the sufferers, received yesterday the following order from Secretary Stanton, which shows the deep and sincere feelings of sympathy by the government for the sufferers. War Department, June 19, 1864. Major Benton, U.S. Arsenal. The funeral and all the expenses incident to the interment of the sufferers by the recent catastrophe at the arsenal will be paid by the department. You will not spare any means to express the respect and sympathy of the government for the deceased and their surviving friends. Edwin M. Stanton, Secretary of War. End quote. The funeral arrangements were coordinated by the arsenal workers in an effort to show their respects to their comrades. Services were held on Sunday, June 19th at the site of the tragedy. Fifteen finely crafted coffins were built by the arsenal's carpenters and sat side by side on a wooden pavilion that had been constructed by the master carpenter, Peter McGinnis. Silver plaques listing the name of the victim were on each coffin, and for those who could not be identified, the plaque stated unknown. Both President Lincoln and Secretary Stanton were in attendance at the service. The funeral procession started at 3.15 p.m., with estimates stating that it included almost 150 carriages as it made its way to the Congressional Cemetery. Mm -hmm. Following a private family service, a carriage carrying the coffin of 13-year-old Sally McElfresh joined the procession at F Street. So she was also one of the victims. Yeah. President Lincoln's personal carriage followed the hearses that transported the remains of the victims. Upon reaching the Congressional Cemetery, the coffins of 15 of the victims were divided into two groups. Those who were identified were placed inside one mass grave, while those who were not were placed in another that was located about six feet away. Okay. The remains of Mary Burroughs and Annie Bosch were buried nearby in family plots. As the coffins were lowered into each of the mass graves by their male arsenal worker counterparts, mourners in the crowd chanted, Farewell, sisters. Farewell. Mm. Another sad thing to know is what was published about Melissa Adams, one of the victims, in the June 18th edition of the Evening Star. Quote, Melissa Adams, killed, is the daughter of Edward C. Adams, Huckster, Center Market. Mr. Adams and family have the general sympathy of the community from the fact that he is the, this is the third child he has lost by violent deaths within a year or two, and singularly two, as if in support of a popular superstition, in each case the disaster occurred on a Friday. Hmm. The first was that of a boy who accidentally shot himself on a gunning excursion. The next was that of another boy run over by a coach and killed. And the third was that of the daughter, Melissa, who perished in the flames yesterday. End quote. Man. At first I was thinking that the first two would have been lost to war. Yeah. But those were just freak accidents. Yeah. The day after the funeral, Arsenal employees met to discuss how to raise funds to erect a monument to honor the dead. A note was sent out to the community at large, and $3,000, or $59,000 today, was collected in order to commission Irishman Lot Flannery of the Flannery Brothers Marble Manufacturers to design and sculpt the memorial. Damn. And this happened during the war. Mm-hmm. That's insane. That they were able yeah. to get that much money. Mm -hmm. Wow. A year after the tragedy, the 25-foot-tall marble and granite statue called Ladies in Waiting was dedicated in Congressional Cemetery to honor the dead in 1865. 
The memorial is topped by a statue of a young woman with clenched hands looking down towards the ground, which has gone on to be dubbed grief. The base depicts the fire and explosion with smoke rising from the Arsenal Laboratory. On the shaft is inscribed the names of the 21 victims and the following. Quote, dedicated to the memory of the victims of the U.S. Arsenal explosion on June 17, 1864. Ellen Roche, Julia McEwen, Bridget Dunn, W.E. Tippett, Margaret Horan, Joanna Connors, Susan Harris, Lizzie Brawler, Margaret Janssen, Betty Brannigan, Eliza Lacey, Emma Baird, Kate Brosnahan, Louisa Lloyd, Melissa Adams, Emily Collins, Mary Burroughs, Annie Bosch, Rebecca Hull, Sally McElfresh, and Pinky Scott. End quote. It should be noted that four of those who died during the explosion were buried the previous day on Saturday, June 18th, at Mount Olivet Cemetery, which is DC's Catholic cemetery. Yeah. These women included Bridget Dunn, Joanna Connors, Rebecca Hull, and Margaret Horan. I wanted to note that I found it interesting that Margaret Horan is noted by that name, as in the newspapers and on her own grave, she's noted as Catherine Horan. Hmm. So I'm not sure where the name Margaret comes from. I wonder if maybe she didn't like her first name and she used her middle name. I don't know. Yeah. It's weird. Or maybe people got it wrong and they put her sister's name down or something, maybe. I don't know. The final victim, 31-year-old Pinky Scott, a widowed mother of two, succumbed to her injuries 17 days after the incident and would later be buried next to her co-workers at the Congressional Cemetery on July 6th. Mrs. Scott was mentioned in the June 18th edition of the Evening Star. Quote, Mrs. Scott, the widow lady who escaped badly burned from the laboratory, found herself buried at the time of the explosion under the bodies of a half dozen of the girls and never expected to emerge alive. But by great exertion, she managed to struggle free and escaped from the building. Under the excitement, she was not aware that she was burned until she had reached the upper gate of the arsenal grounds, when feeling a pain in her leg, she examined it and found it terribly blistered, end quote. Yeah, that's what adrenaline and shock does. I was just horrified that she was buried under her coworkers and had mm -hmm. to, like, claw herself out of there. Right. As it's, like, on fire. I wonder if she even really knew it was happening, you know? God, you'd almost hope not. Yeah. You're just trying to get out. You don't know what you're touching or... It's kind of like... If you've ever been in a panicked situation like that, it really is like a automatic thing, you know? Yeah, your body just goes on autopilot. It just kind of, mm. like your brain kind of shuts off. Your brain is already trying to protect you. Your body just takes over and it's like, I need to get out of here or I need mm -hmm. to do whatever the thing is to like save yourself. Your brain kind of like puts blinders on to mm -hmm. what else is going on around you. Probably is another form of protection. Following the tragedy, the jury ruled that Superintendent Thomas Brown was guilty of negligence by leaving highly combustible materials so close to a building where people were working with equally as combustible materials. Good. He was found guilty of showing a blatant disregard for human life. Mm -hmm. However, no criminal charges were brought against him. No, because the war was happening and he was good at his job and they needed the munitions. Yep. 
That's why that's why everybody at the trial was so gentle. They're like, I don't think he's a full idiot, but I don't want his job. Yeah. And maybe he shouldn't have it after the war. Right. Like, as punishment, we're going to make him stay in this position. He just won't be in charge of fireworks anymore. It's yeah. fine. According to the Library of Congress, quote, on July 4th, 1864, Congress passed Resolution Number 75, a joint resolution for the relief of sufferers by a late accident at the United States Arsenal in Washington, D.C., which allocated the sum of $2,000 be and the same is hereby appropriated out of any money in the Treasury not otherwise appropriated for the relief of victims of such explosion, said money to be distributed under the direction of Major Benton, commanding at said arsenal and in such manner as shall most conduce to the comfort and relief of said sufferers according to their necessities, respectively, and that he report to this house, end quote. Here's a little money for your suffering. I hope some of it went to the those two kids that are left as orphans now. Yeah. Even though that sounds like a lot of money. Oh, it's not. Yeah. Well, $2,000 is probably a lot in the Civil War era. That's a lot of money. Yes, but divided among 30 families. Yeah. Essentially. And who's to say that... <sighs> None of the other workers that got burned would want a cut of it as well. Like yeah. I had to, I had to toss a lady in the river. I should get some of that money. I got burns on my arms from preventing their skirts from burning them to death. So I should get some money. Yeah. So yes. Not to say that they don't, but the yeah. orphans and other families that like relied on that income probably should get that first. Many of the families received very little in the way of reparations for this okay. incident. Mm-hmm. Additionally. Another explosion would take place at the arsenal in December of 1865. So like a year later? Yeah, like a year and and some change later. Yeah. A granite marker engraved with the names of all 21 victims was placed in front of the monument in 2014, hence why so many of my sources were from 2014. Mm -hmm. And in 2015, on the sesquicentennial of the completion of the original monument to the victims... It was rededicated. Hmm. And that is the story of the Washington Arsenal explosion. Damn. I hated that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you weren't supposed to like it. (laughs) I guess it is a disaster. I get it. Okay. (laughs) If you're interested in ad-free content, consider supporting us with a one-time donation either over on Buy Me a Coffee or our Venmo page, both of which are in our link tree and in the show notes. Tired of the same old podcasts every week? When you're ready for something different, come give us a shot. Greetings, we're Technically a Conversation, a podcast for curious people by curious people. Every week, we take turns sharing a new topic, and the other host has no idea what the topic will be. Our topics are all over the place, from light and funny to dark and sometimes spooky. We've covered everything from true crime, historical events and people, pop culture icons, the supernatural and occult. I like that. And legends and folklore. My favorite. We're like the Dollar Tree stuff you should know. Except completely different. (laughs) No matter what the topic is, we try to make the episodes funny. Yeah, you may not want to advertise that. Our jokes aren't very good. What are you talking about? My jokes are fantastic. Hey, I get paid to laugh either way. Wait, you get paid? Check us out at technicallyaconversation.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Shout out to the 11 and a half people that listen to us on Google Podcasts. Wait, you said you were getting paid? And this month's podcast plug is Technically a Conversation, a podcast for curious people by curious people. 
Every week, the hosts take turns presenting a new topic, while the other host has no idea what the topic will be. They strive to entertain and educate in a way that's loose and fun, with topics ranging from light and funny to dark and sometimes spooky. Kind of like us. Yes! (laughs) And we will have a link to their show in the show notes. And this week's listener question comes from our friend Carrie Ann, and she would like to know, would you classify Typhoid Mary as a murderess or not? Yes. I I would say no initially, just because she didn't really, like she was kind of in denial and felt like there was no way this could be happening. But there was definitely a point where it had turned and she knew she was causing this And she knew, like, she was willfully continuing to work and to spread the disease at that point. So she Mm -hmm. became a murderess the second she was like, I don't fucking care. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. For people that are unfamiliar with Typhoid Mary, the down and dirty version is she was a carrier for Mm -hmm. typhoid. She did not exhibit symptoms herself. And she ended up killing a lot of people by acting as a cook for them thereby passing on the disease to them via Food. contaminating what they ate. So, yeah, I would agree with your assessment. I think at first she probably chalked it up to like a series of unfortunate events of right. her, like, Woe is of me. people in her employ mm-hmm. passing away and then having to find new employment. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think at a point you would realize, oh, well, she was told. Yeah. Like the common denominator is me. Like, Yeah. She was told she was put in prison. She got out of prison. Yep. And went right back. So the second uh, she became a murderess, the second she was told, it was like, nah. And was told, I'm going to do it again anyway. Like, I'm just going to yep. keep doing what I did and get paid for it because why I have not? To make money. Yeah. On that note, what's something good you'd like to share? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. What is something good I'd like to share? It's Last week was a hell of a week, work wise, at home. A lot of stress and sickness and, you know, year-end things. Honestly, I think the something good is coming up. (laughs) The time off coming up, I think, is my something good. I have something to look forward to with some, like, genuine time off between both jobs. Mm -hmm. And hopefully seeing my friends and family in a much healthier way where none of us are sick. But who knows? But yeah, just like I'm re- I'm really looking forward to going home and had, eating lots of comfort food and hanging out with you guys. So my something good is coming, I would say, because <laughs> this week was a wash for me, honestly. I'm just so exhausted mm-hmm. from it. Like nothing super terrible happened, but I don't think I can think of anything that was like, wow, <laughs> this was such a good moment. That's fair. Yeah. What about you? Something good is, I think a week or so ago, Caitlin from Pacific Northwest Haunts and Homicides sent me my first tarot card deck. Oh, nice. And I texted her and was like, I appreciate this. How do I read it? Like, (laughs) There's a lot of different ways to do it. Yeah. So I asked her to send me her recommendation of like the book that they use. So Mm -hmm. I got that. It was either yesterday or the day before. I can't remember. So my something good is I'm excited to dive into it and kind of read about it. And Mm -hmm. I'm going to read about it first before I start doing anything with it, just because I want to properly understand it before I start playing around. Well, that's kind of the fun thing, too, is 
with a lot of those cards. There's there's a general theme with the card, but the interpretation can be so variable. Mm-hmm. It's, so fu- it's so fun and interesting to just like see what it is and then see how, if it relates to whatever you were posing or if it was just mm-hmm. like, nope, <laughs> this is just a yeah. bunch of garbage. <laughs> yeah. Either way, it's fun. Yeah. The deck's really pretty. I can show you. There are a lot of really pretty decks. If anything, it's nice to just have them as artwork, you know? It's the Pacific Northwest tarot Ooh. deck, and so it's got, like, different animals and stuff from the Pacific Northwest. That's awesome. So. I have, let's see, there's a, there's that famous painter of all, like, the really beautiful women with, like, the kind of almost, like, Grecian gold. Mucha? I think so, yeah. Yes, it's Alphonse tarot. Mucha? It's tarot Mucha. So all the tarot cards are different Mucha ladies. <sighs> He's like one of my favorite artists, Art Nouveau artists. Mm-hmm. I love his stuff. All right, shall we? We shall. A great way to support the show, if you want to help out, but you can't do so financially, is to leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Good Pods, Podcast Addict, and or Audible. Looking for more content? You can find us online at yieldcrimepodcast.com. If you'd like to see pictures from this week's episode, not to mention bonus content and funny memes, make sure to follow us on Twitter at Yield Crime Pod and on Facebook and Instagram at Yield Crime Podcast. On TikTok, of course you are. Follow us at Yield Crime Podcast. There will be a final sale at our T-Public shop this month running from December 25th through the 29th, so you can get... 35% off merch delivered starting in January. Awesome. So if you so if you want to start the new year with some EO crime swag, that's mm-hmm. a good time to purchase. If you want a playlist of all our episodes on YouTube, click the link in our show notes or in our link tree and subscribe today for not only a list of our full catalog, but a separate list as well, just of our Can You Crack the Cramp Word segments. And on that note... As always, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Madison. And we'll see you next time with another tale. As old as crime. <laughs>